Premier Christian Newscast. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Newscast. I'm Tim Wyatt and this week we're looking across the Atlantic at one of the biggest church stories coming out of America in recent weeks, the Asbury Revival. It all started on an ordinary Wednesday evening chapel service on the 8th of February at a small Christian college in Kentucky called Asbury University. After the chapel service ended, a small number of students decided to carry on praying and worshipping and didn't stop all night. Gradually, more and more began to join them in an endless stream of singing and praying, preaching and communing, sensing something of the Holy Spirit increasingly present in the auditorium. The round-the-clock worship grew and grew and continued for more than two weeks, drawing in tens of thousands of curious and excited visitors from across the country and indeed around the world. It went viral online, with videos of the revival spreading fast on platforms such as TikTok, as well as grabbing the mainstream media's curiosity as well. The college decided to wrap up the non-stop worship on the 24th of February, more than two weeks later, drawing the excitement to a close, but encouraged those present to take the outpouring back to their own churches and towns instead. Today, we're going to hear from a handful of Christians who managed to get into the now famous Hughes Auditorium at Asbury University to taste and see for themselves what was happening. But we'll also try and think about what these kind of revivals mean for the church. Do they leave lasting fruit? Is it all just hype and emotionalism? And what might set Asbury apart from similar outpourings in recent decades? had begun as just a few dozen students at a nondescript Christian university staying on after a worship service quickly grew and grew. First, other students started to trickle into the round-the-clock singing and praying until the Hughes Auditorium on the campus was entirely full. Then, a day or two later, some locals from the small town of Wilmore, where Asbury is located, joined in as well. By days four and five, the local media had picked up on the extraordinary scenes and people from further afield began bussing themselves in forcing other churches and halls across the university campus and the town to open up as overflow facilities. Jessica Tate, a Christian missionary and author who lives about three hours' drive from Asbury in Nashville, Tennessee, arrived on the third day of the revival. She saw it first, as so many did, on social media, but also knew some students and staff at the college, and so quickly decided she wanted to jump in the car and see it all for herself. I asked her what it was like when she first walked into the Hughes Auditorium. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I love um, about what's happening there is it's more of, it was a more of a prayer room model. And so there's something going 24 hours a day, as opposed to other revivals that we've seen that are like, we have a service at 5 p.m., we have a service at 7 p.m. So when you walk in, um, and I kind of joke with my friends about it, like my first experience walking in wasn't what so many other people experienced where they're like, I walked in. And I could feel the presence of God and it was overwhelming and it was this supernatural experience. I walked in and I was like, this is just really cool. Like so neat to see 
Um, so many young people were on the stage when I first got there, probably 30 to 40 people that attend the college and um, they were leading worship. It was crowded, but we were able to get great seats. Like there wasn't a line out the door or anything like that. Um, and at first, like worship was just really sweet and precious being led. I'm sure you've heard so many of the different reports now, like it wasn't perfect. It wasn't produced. Like it's not the best sound equipment in the world, like all of those kind of things. But then there just started being these little moments um, that you could feel the presence of God in a really unique way. And the way they were stewarding what was happening, um, moments for people to come forward and just, you know, a lot of the criticism has been about there not being repentance. And there absolutely was. There's been a lot of criticism about the gospel not being preached. And there absolutely was. And so there were these really special moments where someone would get up and share a Bible verse and you would just feel the presence of God in the room and people would just start going forward to the altars weeping. Probably one of my favorite moments was actually later that night. They dismissed everybody about 1230, I think in, in the middle of the night and about one thirty in the morning, um, there was maybe a couple hundred people in the room and you could just feel the presence of God in such a special way. The next morning, uh, was one of those moments where I walked into the sanctuary and I just go, Oh my goodness, like he's here. And I just started weeping. You could feel the Lord's presence. And it was so strong that the guy who was playing the keyboards, he, he couldn't even keep singing. He put his head down and he's just weeping, uh, because the presence of God was just so thick. So all of that to say, um, it was really neat because it wasn't like come at 7 PM and we can promise God's going to do something. It's more like, Hey, we're here. We're worshiping. We have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and there are people who, you know, maybe came for like an hour and they're like, nothing special about that. Um, but there were just unique moments throughout the day and throughout the night uh, that was just, just real special. Bill Eliff, a pastor in Arkansas and the leader of a revival ministry, was another one of those who streamed into Wilmore, Kentucky to grab a taste of the outpouring in the first week. In an astonishing coincidence, his organization One Cry had been planning to broadcast the annual Collegiate Day of Prayer from Asbury University in late February for well over a year. When news of the students' endless worship service reached through his networks, he and his wife knew they had to drive up to join them too. You know, I, in 1970, I was a freshman on a small uh, college here in Arkansas, and uh there was just a atmospheric sense of God's presence on that campus. And we were praying a bunch of us all night at times. And, and one day in a 15 minute noonday service, student led the Lord just broke in and, uh, it ended up going for hours. We canceled all classes and I was in the room when that happened. And it was the first time I had ever experienced corporately just the manifest presence of God. And it, I, I can't tell you what it did to me. It, it, it really, I was down there speaking this week because they're praying for this to come to that campus again. And I stood in that very spot where I was and just realized that for 53 years, the trajectory of my life has been has been set on this course for revival and awakening and his presence uh, because of that moment, just that moment. And you see that God can do more in five minutes than 
50 years of just normal Christianity, you know. And and so when this happened, the next day, Holly and I, my wife, we were debating, should we go? And she looked at me and she said, let's go. <laughs> and she's kind of that way, you know, a let's go wife. And so we took off. It was a nine-hour trip. Uh, we took off to uh, to Asbury and were there throughout the weekend for about two and a half days. And uh, it was extraordinary. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like? Can you share some of the experience of being inside the Hughes Auditorium? You know, what's fascinating is if if you are walking in expecting your hair to stand on end and you're, you know, just to be blown back three steps or something. It's not like that at all. It, uh, in fact, in, in 2011 in our church here that I pastor, um, we had a real visitation from God that just a normal Sunday morning that God just broke in and lasted for three or four hours. We came back the next night that lasted for three or four hours, and we said, well, let's keep going. And, and it went for five weeks every single night, and uh, we took off on Saturdays. But it was, just, it was just a mercy drop. And as I walked into that environment, I told my wife, I said, you know, this feels the components that were in that time at our church and the spirit is identical. And it wasn't it wasn't crazy. It wasn't, in fact, it was more silent. It was more somber with, with outbreaks of just glorious praise, all uh, spontaneous student led, you know, they would rotate in different groups of students. And if I, I've learned, I've learned a bit about how they're doing that and it would blow you away. The process they're using to bring these students in they look, they look around and they sense students that are just full of the Lord and they invite them up. And they have a lot of music students in their school. They invite them up. They take them to a messy room and they call it the consecration room. And they spend a long time just getting their hearts ready. And only then do they let them step up on stage and lead and and they'll lead for an hour or two hours or three hours that one little group and then another group and then another group and that's been happening now for you know two weeks almost two weeks it's it's, it's extraordinary and so uh the altar was always full it's been every time i have seen it by video or while while i was there it was constantly full they have a prayer team that is very carefully uh, praying over all these people. And and then they have a, a team, uh, the campus pastor and some others are standing off to the side and and they're they're being used to lead, but they're they're not it's not like here's the order of service for tonight. It's it's uh they are listening to the Lord, praying, you can see them conferring, and then they'll step up to the microphone and say, We just sense that the Lord wants to open the microphone for testimonies and they, and they'll give a little instruction and you know a hundred people they'll have to limit it and a hundred people line up and for the next hour and a half you just hear these stories of what's what's been happening at that at that altar which is extraordinary I mean salvation uh, just spiritual and emotional and some even physical healings 
just deliverance from so many things um, that particularly this next generation is infected with and um, and enslaved to, you know. And then there'll be another hour of singing, et cetera. It's just, it's just a calm, beautiful, powerful, palpable uh, moving of the Spirit of God. That's, and it's the one thing that everybody says that's evident is the presence of God. Asbury has been described as the first Gen Z revival, with most of the students spearheading it either in their late teens or early 20s. Shaky videos of the packed auditorium spread like wildfire over TikTok. By February the 18th, just 10 days after the outpouring began, the hashtag Asbury Revival had been mewed more than 60 million times on the popular video sharing social media platform. After the first week, as tens of thousands of Christians from around the world besieged the tiny town of Wilmore, the university decided to only allow those aged 25 and under to join the worship in the main auditorium where it had all begun, in an effort to honour and prioritise a generation which had launched the revival. But in perhaps another side of its youngness and newness, this revival was strikingly spontaneous and leaderless. A cycle of anonymous young student musicians kept the small worship band running, while the only speakers were also non-famous locals or university staff. There has been no charismatic central figure to emerge from the movement so far, with the students instead consciously trying to place all the focus on God rather than any revivalist individual. Jessica Tate said this aspect was one of the things which most encouraged her. By far, two of my most favorite things about what was happening at Asbury, and I would say is absolutely unique, uh, predominantly student-led, right? And I did talk about that in the article that I wrote for you guys. Like, um, we we were there and we watched the students. They were the ones picking, like, who's going up on stage and who's doing this and who's doing that. And the leaders of the university kind of just had like a we're here, we're covering you. They were praying as well, but mostly they were yielding to the students. And one of the leaders actually said this, they're the ones who started it. We're going to be the ones who let them finish it. Like they, they were the ones that stayed and that were hungry. Um, and so I think it's so much a part of what God has been saying he would do. Um, our pride as leaders, really, we love to like preach it, but we don't love to embrace the reality of like, no one's actually going to get the glory for this. You know, um, it's not because the revivalist came, came in. I had a friend ask me like the leader that, you know, there, like, is he a revivalist? And I was like, he's a really great pastor. Like, he's just a really good man. He's not like revival, you know, as much as I, as long as I've known him, he's not been like that. So I think, um, I think what is really special about it is most people couldn't tell you the name of the guy who preached chapel that day. Uh, most people cannot tell you the name of any of those students that were up there leading worship, even though a few of them have even done articles and things like that now, but most, it's not like one person who was anointed was carrying this thing. It was a hungry body of students that chose to keep showing up day in and day out and believing that God would keep doing what he had done that first day. And so I think it's a testament to like what it's really the fulfillment of prophecy. And again, we all like, we all love to say it like nameless, faceless generation, Um, but people don't love the idea that like, I'm not going to get any glory for it. And what was beautiful is these students didn't, they they didn't care. The leaders there didn't care. Um, so yeah, I really, I think that if there was one thing that was more unique than even like the way the presence of God was moving, I think that was it was Mm -hmm. no one was trying to be, if you noticed, have you watched any of the live stream or any of that? Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of them, uh, no one got up and introduced themselves like, Hey, my name is nobody did that. 
Um, so it's just, it's beautiful. It was really beautiful. I think there was more people coming from the outside trying to take credit for things than there were people from the inside. Um, and yeah, I just love that about the Lord that he would pick, you know, Wilmore, Kentucky with 6,000 people and say, I'm going to pour out my spirit on a bunch of students who just don't care. Like they're not trying to become famous, you know? So I loved that. God has his ways, you know, and I think it's, uh, it's the way that God wants to manifest himself to a generation and particularly the next generation that is so tired of the hype, the, the fog machines, the, you know, the prep, the, the, uh, leaders who are disappointing us, you know, that are not godly. I mean, it's just the, the, the other overwhelming thing you see and the leaders there are very carefully, uh, they're not just letting everybody come to the microphone, you know, to speak or do something. Some speakers I've heard, you know, well-known personalities have wanted to come and lend their services and they won't let them do it. They, uh, I, I know you probably saw Tucker Carlson, who's on Fox News, is reported about this. And he he wanted to come and report. And they said, you know, they're so gracious. They said, you know, it's wonderful, but, but please, no, we just ask that you not do that. And his response was good for them, you know, because the prevailing spirit is humility, just unbelievable humility. And, of course, God, you know, Isaiah said God dwells in two places, the high and holy place and with the humble and contrite of heart. And that's where he shows up. And uh, he's making himself known. You know, I, I was reading in Psalm 48, about the glorious day, the greatest day in Israel's history where God was present because they were led by David, who was a man who, after God's own heart and who lived for the presence of God. And so they were in this season, and the, and the psalmist in Psalm 48 says, God has made himself known. And the result of that, in that psalm, we saw the loving kindness of God, we we see his holiness. We see, uh, you know, his enemies flee. All those things are happening in Hughes Auditorium. And if you if you hear the genesis of how this happened uh, on Wednesday the eighth, the speaker was speaking out of Romans twelve about the thirty commands to love in thirteen verses, and he said, "You know what? You can't do this." He's telling the students, "You can't do." You can't forgive. You can't love without hypocrisy. You, you, you can't do this on your own. And the reason most of you can't do it is because you've never tasted of the love of God yourself. And, and you're not full of the love of God. So if you want to tarry, and that was the invitation, and just ask God to show you himself and his love, just stay after. 20 students stayed after. Just 20. That's <laughs> so beautiful to me. And then it just began to grow. And in the afternoon, 200, 300, then it went through the night and has gone nonstop, you know. But what happened is God made himself known to them. And when he did, they saw his loving kindness. They started repenting of their sin. They saw his holiness. And, and God just... I think this is the answer of prayers of millions of people for the last decade. I know here in the U.S., I'm sure around the world, 
that what we need is not another program or a campaign. We need the manifest presence of God. We, we need for the Lord to do what he's done five times in America every 30 to 60 years. Uh, we need another great awakening. And that comes when God just chooses in his mercy to make himself known, just to show up in power and heaven comes down. Gradually, as word spread and the queues outside the auditorium got longer and longer, the feeling of the movement began to shift. But Jessica Tate said on her second visit, about a week into the outpouring, the students had managed to resist outside forces, trying to exploit the revival for their own ends. We were literally in that transition phase, and so it was really neat to watch, actually, um, to only have 150, 200 students the first night in the middle of the night to there being like standing room only, nobody can even get in the building by the time we left. Um, yeah, I think by the end, obviously, uh, as you would put it, like revival hunters. And I think this is my personal opinion. I have such mixed emotions about that because I think there is this hunger, right? That's pure. And it's like, God is moving. I have to be there. And I think that's beautiful. Um, and then there's another portion that we started seeing come out, which was like, I want to capitalize on this and, you know, see what I can do about it. We went at the end, I, I brought some students, a friend of mine, and I brought some young people for the College Day of Prayer, which was the very last event that they did there. Um, and I would say by that time, it had calmed back down again, to be honest with you. Like, it wasn't a large crowd, the room wasn't full, um, and it was just a, a really different vibe than what I think people experienced in that time period that I actually wasn't there, uh, where there were just lines for days around the corner and things. So, yeah, I mean, I want to believe that most people were there with just really good intentions, wanting to experience the Lord. You mm -hmm. know, like that's that's what I that's what I want to believe for. <laughs> Nevertheless, a fortnight into the experience, the town of Wilmore, population just six thousand, was bursting at the seams. There were no more hotel rooms for miles around, and barely enough feed to feed the estimated fifty thousand people who had flocked to Asbury. As a result, the university decided to wind down the non-stop worship services after the long-planned collegiate day of prayer was broadcast from Hughes Auditorium on the 24th of February. The authorities urged revival hunters to instead carry the flame from Asbury back to their own communities. One senior Asbury University official said, Jesus calls us to go out, so now that we have come in and received amazing filling up, it's truly time to go out and share that gospel and carry the light and fire into our local communities, our local homes, our local churches, schools and workplaces. Bill Elif said he had already seen signs that this was indeed starting to happen. 
but within days, we began to hear reports of other campuses. Uh, I could list you probably a dozen campuses. One of the major, uh, you know, Division One campuses in America is Baylor University, and I have a picture of. It looked to me, and those who were there said somewhere between a thousand and two thousand students on the lawn night before last just spending hours in his presence. And then the next day in the chapel, uh, just spending hours in his presence, just like it's happening in Asbury. That's happened at Samford University, Lee University. I could name a dozen of those. So, And then last Sunday, the last two Sundays, we're hearing reports of churches. Uh, we our, our church has five different locations. In every single location, uh, the Lord just manifested himself in in a special way. And then then Monday, you know, I get a text from some of my buddies and one in the state of Mississippi said, I just got out two thirty in the afternoon, he said, I just got out of our church service. I have no words. A hundred and six people came to Christ and were instantly baptized. Then I got another report from a guy down the street from him uh, who said, uh, I cannot believe it, 52 students were saved and instantly baptized in their street clothes. And then, and then I get another, uh, com- had another conversation with a pastor in Texas who said, last Wednesday night we met for prayer. Of course, all of us are aware of what's happening. And he said, it just, it just kept going for two and a half hours. We decided to come back the next night. And then Friday night, and then we weren't going to meet on Saturday, but people just showed up and we met. And then, and then Sunday, they have multiple services. He said it just it blended into one continuous service. And he said, and oh, by the way, 60 people were saved and were instantly baptized. So, I mean, the, the, I've studied revival for 53 years. These are the kind of reports you hear that came out of the 1857 revival, the Welsh revival. I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens. You know, I think the Lord is about to take our eyes off Asbury and put them on Him and on our own city. And uh, one of my buddies said, should I go to Asbury? He said, well, go if the Lord tells you. But I said, He's coming to your town. He's coming. And you may, you may need to just stay right there and help shepherd what the Lord is doing, you know, in these moments. So I, I, am, I am cautiously but expectantly hopeful that this will explode and that we will, we will see the next great awakening. And, and perhaps not just in the United States, uh, because people are desperate. I think COVID, God used COVID to just strip us down and make us desperate in so many ways. I mean, the world shut down in six weeks. How how could that happen? And suddenly we were stripped from our uh, sports, entertainment, health, money, everything. Even the church was stripped of all the things that we hold on to and look to to kind of make us feel good about ourselves. And it just brought us back to Him into desperation and I think it was part of the preparatory work that God was doing to bring us, perhaps, and that happened all over the world. 
So perhaps we're about to see a global moving of God. Um, and we, we cry out for that. Jessica Tate said that while there was a part of her which was sad to see the students' revival brought to an end, sending out was part of the DNA of Asbury University, and so it made sense to try and release what had been captured there into the wider church. I don't think uh, we fully understand that, like, Asbury has been, my friends that went there, most of them are missionaries or they're, they're pastors, and it's a very missional community. It's a very missional university. So the idea of, like, let's take this and go out, is very true to their DNA. It's very true to who they are. It, it wasn't like a sudden shift of like, now they want to be missional. No, like that is very much who they are. And it's very, we would say on brand, right? Like it's very true to like who they are as a university and to their mission statement and to what they're trying to create. So all of that to say, I cannot tell you what I would have done if it was me because it, it wasn't me. Um, I think like anyone else, I would have loved to see what God could have done or would have done if, if we would have just kept going, like how long, like how long would we have kept seeing these visitations? What more might've happened uh, if we would have kept going. And then at the same time, I'm like, he chose them. And this was the decision that they chose. And so we should very much like, I think humbly respect the choice that they made for their community, for their students, for the university, for their families. I'm 1000% excited to see what's going to happen. And at the same time, um, I, here's the deal. Like there have been little moments of revival, right? We can name different ones. Welsh revival over in Europe, right? Like you've got Asbury back in the seventies, you've got Toronto and all of its controversy. You've got Azusa street, like go down the, the list of things. And um, Toronto, especially like, I know a lot of people who were radically touched in probably one of the most controversial revivals we've seen in the last 50 years. Right. Um, I think the long lasting fruit that has come out of that has been absolutely remarkable. And so even with Asbury, with this, like we actually probably will not understand the depth of what happened in those days uh, for another five, 10, 15 years, even when we see long lasting fruit of those who went out on the mission field and who knows what they might experience, those who go into pastoral roles and end up leading movements themselves at the same time. I just feel in my gut um, that we're going to see probably fruit quicker right now. And and here's my reasoning for believing that there's just been, and this is what I wrote about for y'all's article. There has been so much prophecy about this generation and what they would carry and what they would lead. And we're already seeing just the fruit of Asbury now on this campus and that campus and now this university and now that university and it's popping out everywhere. Like we're seeing these little fires kind of start popping up everywhere Um, because I think a generation that's been pretty discredited is now hearing, no, like we really believe in you and we really believe that God's going to use you. And, and they're kind of becoming more determined to lead the way to say like, we need this and we're going to run after an outpouring of the Holy spirit. We're going to run after uh, revival or, you know, whatever you want to term it. I don't get too mixed up in the like nuances of outpouring or revival or whatever, but um, they're hungry for Jesus. And so I think, I think we're going to see a lot of fruit and I think we're going to see a lot of fruit quickly as this generation really steps into who God's called them to be, where statistics have said they're the most depressed, anxious, suicidal generation. Um, they're, they are really seeking the heart of the Lord to become a very healed generation uh, that becomes great evangelists and great movers and shakers in the kingdom. So I'm, I'm super excited. 
Um, I'm super excited to see what happens in the coming weeks, months, years. Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. Not everyone was getting carried away, though. I wanted to understand more about how these ecstatic moments in evangelical history happen and what legacy they leave behind. So I spoke to church historian John Maiden, from the Open University. I suppose um, as a historian, I, I'm not particularly surprised. Um, evangelicalism uh, originates uh, with revivalism and is, has been punctuated by revivals uh, ever since the 1730s. Um, and, you know, the history of evangelicalism is, is in some ways a history of, of, of revivals. I was surprised in some ways at the form that the Asbury uh, revival has taken. Um, it, it's been different to some of the um, more recent revivals that I've been aware of, thinking, say, of the Lakeland revival in 2008, which was much more uh, centred on one particular kind of charismatic figure, and it was all about the kind of louder music, and um, I suppose there was more kind of showmanship, if you like. With the Asbury revival, it, it's been much more low key, and in some ways, seems to harken back to a, an earlier form of revivalism that's become that's been less common in evangelicalism in recent decades. What exactly do you mean by that? How, how is it? Um, how, how, what, what, what kind of historical parallels would you draw then? Well, the, I suppose there there are a number of patterns of, of revivalism within evangelicalism historically. The one of the earliest patterns, which I suppose we see with um, the early Methodists uh, and uh, with Jonathan Edwards and, and other transatlantic uh, revivalists, was something that was more spontaneous, uh, some a kind of sudden work of God, uh, in, in um, understood by those involved to be in response to the preaching or, or to prayer. I mean, it could be very emotional and and could involve various charismatic phenomena but it was it was fairly i suppose um it wasn't orchestrated particularly uh, it was something that was uh, understood to be spontaneous a sudden work of god an awakening uh, in the 19th century uh, revivalism becomes something which is i suppose more more packaged and and planned uh, and we often associate this with people like Charles Finney. As far as Charles Finney was concerned, uh, revivalism was not so much a miracle. It was there was almost a science to revivalism. If you did the right thing, if you if you kind of prepared, planned for a revival in the right way, it would just be something that would happen. Um, he said, uh, revivalism is not a miracle. It consists entirely in the right exercise of the powers of nature, and that's probably the kind of revivalism that that you and I are, are more used to seeing. It's the kind we associate with healing evangelists like Oral Roberts, Amy Sample McPherson, 
more recently with evangelists like Billy Graham, Louis Palau, people like that. Uh, and so that's the more kind of planned, packaged, marketed approach to revivalism. Uh, the kind of revivalism we've seen at Asbury, I think, goes back to that kind of older pattern, something that does seem to be sudden, something that does seem to be spontaneous. Uh, and Asbury has been, it's been intense. It's been, um, from what I've seen, um, you know, experiential, expressive, but has been quite low key at the same time. Well, revivals are have often been heavily mediated, um, whether that's in the 18th century, um, or, um, you know, through word of mouth or through or through printed text, um, or more recently in the 20th century, the, the charismatic renewal, the charismatic charismatic revival of the 1960s and 1970s. It was something that was largely mediated by um, cassette tapes, uh, you know. Uh, testimonies of revival being um, recorded and disseminated globally. So revivals are often heavily mediated, whether that's in print uh, or through uh, audiovisual um, or through word of mouth. Uh, revivals are often networked and mobile. You know, we that there is this idea that revivals spread or the revivals. Um, um, or that the the blessing of revival can somehow be imparted, so it, so revival can take place in other places. Uh, so historically, revivals have sometimes been very local, uh, even limited to one Christian congregation. But often they've been translocal, uh, and the the jet age, I suppose, has intensified a kind of kinetic translocal exchange. So. So two examples of this would be um, the Toronto Blessing in the mid-90s and then the Lakeland Revival, which I mentioned uh, in 2008. And, and, you know, people from all over the world visiting those places in order to both, you know, to witness what's happening, to experience what's happening, but also um, to, I mean, the, the phrase used at Toronto was to catch the fire uh, and perhaps to take that um, experience that work of God back with them uh, and perhaps they would see something like that happen in their own country in their own context does that tend to happen uh, I mean uh, people get very excited Christians get very excited about these kind of revivals and uh, and there is a kind of often a kind of desperate hoping that this will kind of spill out uh, in in your experience or in your study do they leave much of a legacy behind when they eventually kind of fizzle out they they can um, the I mean some of the the great I suppose um, uh, moral campaigns of the nineteenth and the twentieth century have uh, it's been argued have their roots in in revivals more recently with the Toronto blessing I think there would be many Christians who would say that the the impact that that that, that moment had on them has has had a legacy in in their in their in their ministries, or, or in their ongoing experience of God. Um, so revivals can have all kinds of legacies, both um, personal, but also social and um, collective. And revivals too um, can. I think we see this in the case of Asbury. You know, Asbury has a tradition of revivalism. Um, there was a major revival there in 1970. 
um, its history has been punctuated by revivals before and, and, and after that. And I think revivals can leave across generations uh, an expectation that this something like this might happen again. I think we've seen that in the case of Asbury, perhaps, and, and um, certainly in, in the case of other revivals as well. And just lastly, then, um, you, you mentioned how revivals have a history that goes back certainly hundreds of years to the kind of Methodist era. Um, are they are an exclusively kind of modern phenomenon in the historical sense, or, or do you think, can we actually connect them with some of the accounts of the early church that we read in, in kind of the New Testament? Do, are, is there any continuity through, through church history that far back, or are they really something that grows out of a kind of the tumult of the last few hundred years? Um, participants in revival, um, evangelical revivals, Pentecostal, charismatic, will often look back to uh, the, the uh, early church and to the Acts of the Apostles and to Pentecost as a kind of blueprint for revival. So I think there would be an argument amongst the practitioners that this is something uh, that can be found um, uh, in, across church history or uh, during certain uh, phases of, of church history. And certainly historically, you don't, you know, revivalism, revitalization in the church is not just limited to the 1730s and to, and to the coming of evangelicalism. However, I would say that the kind of revivalism that I associate with modern evangelicalism does seem to be linked. If, there is, if, if there's one thing that can be said as a common feature across a number of these revivals is that it seems to be often a response to a sense of perceived crisis. And certainly in the 1960s and the 1970s, with the charismatic renewal or charismatic revival, as it was sometimes called, uh, there was a sense of social crisis. There was a, a perception of a political crisis. You, you know, you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis at the beginning of the 1960s and everything that's happening in the Cold War. Also a sense of the church in crisis. Um, the this idea of, of secularization in the 60s and the 70s and it, certainly with the charismatic renewal charismatic revival i would say that that's an example of seeking revitalization for the church at a moment of perceived religious and cultural crisis and that can be seen in other examples of revival uh, across evangelical history as well uh, what's interesting about asbury as well is that I, I do wonder what it tells us about Generation Z, if you like. Um, I know a number of the people who have been uh, involved in Asbury have talked about um, the the sense of the high levels of anxiety that many young people feel, the high uh, levels of kind of mental health struggles that many young people feel, and this idea that the desire to experience God's presence is in some ways uh, a, a, a response to um, to those struggles that, that so many young people um, seem to have uh, today, but also the fact that the Asbury revival is is student led. Uh, it seems to have sought to uh, avoid kind of uh, having any kind of kind of central leadership or kind of key leading figures on the platform. And you know, is that I wonder a kind of pushback to particular models of kind of charismatic leadership uh, because of the, the various um, uh, controversies over spiritual abuse, um, which we've come across in, in the church in, in recent decades. 
So I, I'm, I'm interested in the ways in which what's happening in the Hughes Auditorium could reflect the particular crises, collective and individual, that young people are experiencing today. Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. And for a final perspective a bit closer to home, I called up Clyde Thomas, a pastor at Victory Church in Cumbran, South Wales, which saw its own revival break out almost exactly 10 years ago. Obviously, the word revival, many different thoughts to many different people, doesn't it, Tim? You know, some people will think of, you know, a move of God led by maybe one person. Others may kind of think back to the Welsh revival or the Hebridean revival, where there was breakouts through prayer and lots of waiting on the Lord. But actually, I think these times, they're special times with the Lord, and they're not Although revival is sort of meant to be the norm, we're meant to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit every day, these times we recognise are very special. And for us at Victory Church, uh, 2013 into 2014, it was actually April the 10th, so we're going to remember 10 years this this April. Um, It was a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And, uh, and the presence of God just increased. And really, there was something different about that meeting. That's the only way I can describe it. We had lots of powerful meetings. Um, I'd been at the church as a leader for just two months at that time. And um, I was kind of one of the assistant leaders. And, um, and on that Wednesday night, I just remember the presence of God filling the house. And a gentleman who was in a wheelchair, long-standing member of the congregation, Um, literally jumped out of his wheelchair, lifted the wheelchair above his head. Now, this wheelchair was heavy, right? I mean, I barely lifted it at the time. It was heavy. Lifted it up and ran around the auditorium with the the wheelchair like a trophy. Um, And, you know, in that moment, there was probably 50, 60 people there that night. The following night, there was a couple of hundred there. And then it increased and increased. And we were seeing you know, probably three, 350, 400, up to, up to 600 people some nights. Um, and we met every night of the week apart from Fridays. And, and did the kind of word spread quite quickly like it has here, it, it seems in Asbury? Did you have people coming from, you know, who, who were kind of newcomers to Victory Church, weren't even from your part of Wales, maybe? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we have, we did have a lot of local uh, stories, which was awesome. And it had a profound impact locally. Um, and also nationally, from we'd, we had a lot of churches bringing kind of teams down, um, but internationally r- news spread quickly. And I, I personally put that down to, you know, in our generation back then, uh, 10 years ago, social media had really kicked off. Um, so there was we, we were a church that was already on social media. We had a good web presence. We did a lot of live stream already at that point. So I think Victory Church as a movement had began to get known a little bit. So I think there was already kind of stirrings that the Lord was doing something amongst broken people. Uh, we, we've always been a church that's ministered to the most broken and hurting, you know, and um, and I think that was kind of ingredients, really, 
that contributed to it. We had a lot of revival tourism, <laughs> um, which, you know, hey, look, people are hungry. And if they're hungry and they want to travel, um, I think long term effect of that is not always, you know, amazing for a local church. Um, but certainly in the in the initial um, moments, initial six months, we had lots of tourism. One one story that uh, still makes me well up right now was there was a woman we used to minister all through the day to visitors. So we'd have the building open praying we'd be just worshiping and you know just preparing hearts and then in the evening we would have an evening meeting. and one woman traveled from texas usa she was in her 80s at the time and she got on a plane on her own got a luggage together and come and i walked into the main hall at the time and it was just the middle of the day and i could just it was empty i could just hear that her sobbing and i walked over i didn't want to kind of interrupt her time and she looked up and her face was red with tears and she just said he's here and it was like the way I describe it is it was it was just the most powerful moment because you know if I say he's here now you're just like okay that's just two words right but the way she said it the conviction she said it it was like man I've traveled all those miles but he's actually here yeah and I think during that time Tim um times of refreshing acts tells us doesn't it it just seems like those special times are like a bit of an advancement, a bit of a like the booster pack on your car. Uh, anyone you pray for just seems to get touched by God and healed. And, you know, people just get saved really easily. And I think it's just God gives us that to increase our hunger because ultimately we're called to worship him. Right. You know, we're called to actually adore him. And I think we need to not get complacent with these things. So I'm excited about this move in Asbury. I've been praying for them over there as well. What he was observing on the other side of the Atlantic in Asbury was exciting and encouraging, Clyde Thomas added. I've learned enough to know that God can move any way he wants to move. And he doesn't need our permission. He doesn't need our kind of, you know, like there's a difference between being discerning and wise and like critiquing. And I think, you know, we can critique something and be discerning and wise, but we have to be really careful that we allow God to be God as well. So, you know, time will tell. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, the call of God on the body of Christ is to fan into flame what's happening with these young people. Because how exciting is it that these young people, these students are hosting, you know, the presence of God, and they're just letting it happen. You know, they're not necessarily looking for kind of celebrities to come in or you know just they're not looking to change the dynamic of what God is doing from that Wednesday they're just letting God be God and I think you know who can who can get critical about a prayer meeting that started on a Wednesday and still going right I often say people sometimes say to me you know at Victory you know why did the outpouring stop and I say it didn't stop it's not stopped. People are still getting healed. People are still getting saved. But the shape of it has changed. What we do is, and and I think, you know, when you think of it like that, we're not waiting for the move of God. We are a move of God. It really reminds us that God has given every one of us as a believer in our workplaces, if we're in vocational ministry like myself, if we are, you know, in a secular job, in every we have power and authority from the Lord. And I think the simple truth is, Tim, that God moves when we step out 
And sometimes God moves when we step out of the way. And I think every move of God like this is characterized, at least at the beginning, with humility and hunger. These group of students, you can tell they're humble and they're hungry for God. They're worshiping, they're praying. And we have a God that's generous, right? We have a God that's going to answer that kind of faith. So I think, you know, um, certainly with us, we saw that. Um, definitely there was a sense in which we all felt out of our depth at the time. And, you know, we got shattered, we got tired. And, you know, this move is like eight to 10 days in, right? It's very easy to, well, not very easy, but it's it's more easy to keep doing what they're doing right now. But in a couple of months when the tiredness kicks in, that's when, you know, they're really going to have to dig deep and think, right, who should be involved in this? How do we do this? How do we, um, organize is the wrong word, but how do we strategize this? What is meant to be is it meant to be people coming here getting blessed is this a missional movement are we sending people out to other campuses and i mean i think i heard through the grapevine i'm not sure factually whether this is right but i think maybe they're considering limiting it to under 25s i heard somewhere um and i think that'd be a good move you know this is a, a campus movement god's moving on the campuses and hey wouldn't it be amazing if this spread right across america and and the way and to us, right, into our colleges and unis. A lot of believers, as you'll probably know, get quite cynical about these things. And they think that that these kind of events are often kind of overhyped, whipped up, over-emotional, and they're kind of jumped on by outsiders looking to build a name for themselves. Do you ever worry about that? How, how do you respond to those kind of cynical claims? Sure. You know, I mean, look, people jump on all kinds of things. And, you know, when we had, you know, the outpouring every night of the week, people would come, people would want a platform. And, you know, you just have to do the best you can in those moments to steward what God's doing. And no one is going to get it all correct. Some people just genuinely want to help and they want to be a blessing. I think, you know, God is God, right? And we can allow God to move in a humble and an exciting way. I think, yes, will there be emotionalism? Sure, some people are going to get their emotions, you know, are going to be high because they're already, you know, you imagine you get on a plane and you go to Asprey now, right? Your expectation level is already high. So there's, I get that. There's a, there's a, there's a dynamic in which saying, well, well, how much of this is just hype? How much of this is really a move? And I think we just have to really leave that with the Lord. The result is, is it is it releasing people into mission and evangelism in their locations? Is it is it stirring up people to love Jesus more? Um, you know, and some of the excesses that we see, you know, we're never going to stop them because some people, that's just the way they live. But actually, you know, Jesus is still doing something in the midst of that. When you look back over over past revivals like, you know, um, Azusa Street, there was all kinds of things going on at that time that we would not agree with, right? But then in the midst of that, God was doing the most incredible things. And we have the Pentecostal movement today because of those initial revivals. When you look at the Hebridean revival, there's always going to be things that jump in. There's going to be counterfeits. We know that from the word. And that's where we just have to be discerning and wise, but not critical. There's a big difference between having a pharisaical, you know, self-righteous critique that says, I don't want God to move over there because they're not doing it like I would do it. No, we want God to move in every way, in every shape, in every form, to bring glory to God and to bring hope to people. Jessica Tate also said she had little time for critics of Asbury, accusing the students of getting overhyped on emotion. Here, here's what I would say. Here's a couple of things I would say. Um, 
is emotionalism that bad? Like, is there actually something terribly wrong with emotionalism? Because here, here's an idea. Um, were students emotional at Asbury? Absolutely. Should they be when your heart is touched by the gospel in a radical way? Like, I, I would say absolutely. Like, are there people down at the front crying and weeping? Yeah, 100%. Thank God. Like, I think it is, it is more scary and more threatening to the reality of the gospel when someone is unemotional when Jesus shows up than when they are. And so I think we've been looking at this from a totally wrong perspective for a very long time. Like, um, I, I hope that I never get to a point where I'm unemotional about the presence of Jesus in a room. I hope that I never get to a point where I'm unemotional about the reality of the gospel being preached. Like maybe the problem is we've all heard the gospel too many times and we've become numb to it. And here are a bunch of students that the reality of the gospel hit their heart and they were unafraid to be emotional and say, how could I possibly stop worshiping after what he's done for me? What a beautiful response to the reality of who Jesus Christ is, right? Like unending worship. Um, The second question I would ask is this, like, would you rather them be emotional outside of the church? Like, would you prefer them to be emotional in a bar? Like, would you prefer, because there is emotionalism that happens there. Would you prefer them to be emotional? I'm from Texas. Like, we love our football. We love our football and I, I, American football. Um, like, would you rather them be emotional at a football game? Uh, because emotionalism is going to happen there. Like, we are emotional people. Like, that's just what, that that is the way we were created. I would also contend that God is an emotional God. Um, so where would you rather them have emotions? It's going to happen, right? So... I understand some of the critiques that we can take it too far, that it can become all of these different things. My opinion of when I was there was that it was not blatant, fake emotionalism at all. I would say it was pure, honest worship uh, of a heart that encountered a very real Jesus. And what came out of that was I won't stop worshiping. What came out of that is I can't help but hit my knees and cry at the reality of the gospel. What came out of that was I can't help but cry for a generation that's been lost and that has been hurt and tempted and all of these different things. Um, so yeah, there was there was emotions, and I think they were really great emotion, like great Jesus emotions. So, as the Asbury Revival begins to recede into history, time will tell what this outpouring of emotion and worship and spirit on a college campus in a little town in Kentucky really means, both for Gen Z Christians trying to chart their own way forward without some of the baggage of the Christianity they've inherited, and for a church trying to figure out how to reconnect with both God and its culture in our increasingly secular 21st century.
that's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 